and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking this morning at chapter 17 and starting in verse 31. Luke 17, beginning in verse 31, and we're going to read to the end of this chapter. But before we read the word, let us seek our God again in prayer. Lord, our God, we do pray that you would help us as we come to read and study your holy word. Lord, we recognize that we must have the enlightening power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, would you shine that light upon this text and reveal your truth to us that we might hear what Jesus has to say, receive it in our heart and be transformed. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 17 and verse 31. This is God's word. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, this is God's holy word. And may he help us as we study it together. When you end a passage with vultures gathering, you know, you know you're in a tough text. And I must confess, uh, with some fear and trepidation, uh, I enter into this sermon. It's a sobering word that our Lord Jesus has for us this morning. Well, let's remember where we are as we study this passage. Last week, we heard from Jesus as he spoke first to the Pharisees and then to the disciples about the kingdom of God. And Jesus was aiming to give clarity about the kingdom. He taught us that the kingdom would not come with earthly signs, as the Pharisees wanted them, movements of politics or social revolutions. You can't time the kingdom according to astrological events or forecast the day. And don't follow anyone who tries because the kingdom doesn't come with observation. In fact, shocking the Pharisees, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is among you. How so? Well, because the king, Jesus, is here. Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God with his appearance, a great spiritual kingdom. And there is evidence as Satan's kingdom is gutted with Jesus's exorcisms and as the curse is overturned as Jesus heals. And yet the disciples need to recognize while the kingdom is here, there is an already to the kingdom. There's also a not yet to the kingdom, which is why we pray about the kingdom coming. While we already have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places, we all daily live in the not yet of the kingdom, facing our own indwelling sin and the sufferings of a present evil age. Now, this pattern of suffering in the glory is the pattern of Christ's own life. He suffered on the cross and then entered into glory. Well, so it will be for his people. But as we prepare for that coming day of glory, Jesus assured us 
of several things. One, nobody's going to miss it. As lightning flashes in the sky, so it will be when Christ returns. Two, the world will be surprised. They're going to be carrying on as normal, and words of warning will not be heeded by them. But three, when the day comes, as with the flood in Noah's day and Lot escaping Sodom, the wicked will be totally destroyed. And yet, while Jesus gives this a hope here of escaping suffering in a wicked world, he also now in our, te- our text lays down a warning. And we might frame the warning with this question. Is Sodom in your heart? Is Sodom in your heart? Will you hold on to this world and be lost? Now, it's interesting that Jesus gives this warning not to the Pharisees, but to his own disciples. Those who profess to love him need to be warned because, dear friends, there is always a danger of those who claim Christ yet clinging to the world. We remember a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul named Demas. And Paul, in his last letter writing to Timothy, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Jesus is warning us as good soldiers of Christ against desertion. Now, this warning is coming to you not from a mean-spirited Redeemer, but from a compassionate, loving Savior who wants you to persevere. So he is bidding you to contemplate the danger so that you would be ready for his return. Now, as Christ sets this before us, I want us to see two things in our text. First, I want you to think with me about the question, what will be lost? What will be lost? As we begin our text, Jesus says in verse 31, on that day, he's talking about the day of his return as clear as the lightning in the sky, that day similar to the flood or Sodom's destruction, when many folks are destroyed, on that day, verse 31, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, Jesus paints two scenarios as illustrations of what those who profess his name could be doing on the last day, the day of Christ's return. They could be busy with work on their housetop. Now, we all need to remember that in the ancient Near East, a home was flat. So on the roof, you would do things like laundry, prepare food, tend to your plants, and even sleep. And people, especially women, carrying on the work of the day, they would use their roof as a living space. Well, as you do life and boom, the day of Christ arrives, Jesus is saying, don't run back through the house and retrieve your stuff to take it with you. Don't find the snack bag and start packing it. Don't rummage through your mementos. Don't pull out your family heirlooms. Don't go through the jewelry. Don't find your favorite shirt and shoes. This is not a time for you to focus on your worldly goods as though you're losing something when you meet Jesus. The message is really simple. When Christ Jesus splits the sky, stop everything you're doing. Get out of the house and focus on Jesus. That same emphasis is conveyed with a different social situation. 
as Jesus addresses now a person in a field. End of verse 31. If you're in the field, don't turn back. Same idea. Don't go back to the house and get your stuff. The time to be prepared for the return of the Son of Man is before he comes back. And not when he comes and you find yourself surprised. God's people are not to be surprised because we are awake, alert, watching, eagerly waiting for the, for the arrival of Christ. We're holding things in this world loosely as we look to the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. And in this context, when we've been pointed to the flood and the overflow, overthrow of Sodom, we should recognize that Noah and Lot were told of what was to come, just as we are being told of what is to come, and they made preparations. Noah built an ark. God had him do elaborate work over a number of years. Lot only had a short period of time, but he did get out of Dodge. Now, we know Lot hesitated, but in mercy, the angel seized his lingering hand and brought him out. However, the point here is the Lord is conveying a serious message to us who say we are attached to him. Namely this, your attachment to your worldly possessions could kill you. Your attachment to your worldly possessions could kill you. If the last day finds you conducting yourself like the wicked, caught up in the things of this world and your stuff, then you will meet the end of the wicked. Remember last week we talked about what the people in Noah's and Lot's day were doing when judgment fell. They were doing the normal things of life. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. There's nothing wrong with those activities. Likewise, there's nothing wrong with working on your housetop or being out in your field on the day when Jesus returns. In fact, those very illustrations tell us that we should be doing our ordinary duties right up to the moment that Jesus comes back. We don't climb in an underground bunker and lock ourselves away from the world as we await the day of Christ's return. We do the things that God has called us to do, the ordinary things. It's Luther's famous illustration. If I knew Jesus was coming back today, I would plant a tree, Luther said. Do your ordinary stuff. Go to work, raise your kids, shop for the food that you have to get, but do it all with a view to Christ. Because, brethren, what is wrong is if we do the normal things of life that we're sucked into secularization. What is wrong is having your life revolve only around eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling and so forth. You see, worldly affairs can squeeze you into a mold where your devotion to Christ vanishes away. And the crucial question for me and for you is, Will the last day find me occupied with the activities of the world and completely unprepared in my soul? Will I tend to my garden and neglect the garden of my heart? Dear friends, is your soul ready 
for Jesus to come. If today were your last day, are you ready? Are you neglecting your heart before God so that the reading of Scripture, praying, evangelizing, putting off sin, crying out for the Spirit, all those things are just pushed aside in the busyness of your life? Dear friends, all of us are in danger of giving our priorities of life to the routine affairs of life. And then we disregard the fact, as Israel did, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here we are in this world and we're building houses. We are engaging in renovation projects. I've got one going on at my house. We're preparing our our hunting camps and our lake houses. We're doing work on our boats or campers or cars. We're running kids to baseball and to dance rehearsals. We're all going to work. We're doing things with our house. We're paying bills. We're planting stuff in the yard and on and on I could go. But as we engage in the frenzied pace of life, we could have our focus dragged away to the world and miss Jesus. As though this present Sodom, this present evil age has become our home. And we get comfortable here, no longer living as a stranger, an alien or an exile. Are you at home here? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's pressing you to a certain level of detachment from this world and its stuff. You've got to recognize that you have to wall yourself off from the world and to paint the wrist for you in bold colors. Jesus says in one of the most memorable verses in the Bible in the fourth shortest, remember Lot's wife. Now, again, When Jesus says this, he's not talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to his own disciples. And he tells them, I want you to look back to one person who is a member of the covenant community whose soul was lost forever. What happened to Lot's wife? Well, the angels came and they told Lot the Lord had sent them to destroy Sodom. So Lot and his family had to get out lest they be swept away in the destruction. And they left. The commands about leaving were very specific. Having brought Lot, his wife, his daughters out by the hand, mercifully pulling Lot when he lingered. The angel said this, Genesis nineteen seventeen: Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. But what happened? Well, as they fled, Moses reports, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She was immediately judged for her rejection of God's word and the clear evidence that while she fled Sodom, Sodom was in her heart. Now, brethren, as we ponder how to apply what Jesus is saying here. As I draw out some lines of thought, let me first make a crucial historical point. When Jesus is referencing the days of Noah and the days of Lot and speaking of this particular judgment on Lot's wife, he's talking about these Old Testament events like they really happened. Because they did. The flood is not a myth. 
Sodom's destruction, actual fire and sulfur raining down from heaven to sweep away a city, that's not some moral lesson. Lot's wife is a pillar of salt. It's not a possible explanation for salt formations at the Dead Sea. Oh, look at that one, honey. I think it looks like a person. No, this really happened. Jesus is telling you, remember a historical event. And if Christ is wrong about this, Christ can't be our savior. Stakes are high here. The second coming, likewise, is a real historical event. And those who refuse to believe in Christ or follow Christ to the end will meet real judgment. But what I specifically want us to think about here is what is Jesus telling us that we're to call to mind as we remember Lot's wife? Now, I must tell you, I've been indebted for years to J.C. Ryle. Many of you will know I'm doing a lot of work on J.C. Ryle at the moment. But I remember where I was when I first read J.C. Ryle's sermon on this verse. I was sitting in the hospital after Tori was born. And the impact on my soul has lasted for nearly 20 years. Ryle brings out a couple of points. He says that first, Jesus is telling the disciples they need to think about their privileges because we need to think about Lot's wife's privileges. Lot's wife, like the disciples, had unique religious blessings. Lot's wife was a recipient of great kindness. How so? Well, she was a part of a family, one of the few on earth to have God in near communion, God directing them. Now, we don't know exactly when Lot got married, but presumably it was before the time when Lot left Ur with Abram to go to the land of promise. And when God called Abram out and gave Abram special promises, Lot and his wife went with them because they believed those promises. They followed Abram in the blessings God had given, evidently trusting that God would do exactly what he said. Lot's wife was there. When Abram built altars of worship and engaged in worship, she was there when the Lord got Abram out of a mess of his own making, lying about his wife in Egypt. She saw her husband rescued from a nasty king, Kedor Laomer, Genesis 14, and brought back from certain destruction. She saw her husband's righteousness. She saw Abram's righteousness. She saw the Lord caring for Abram and Sarah. And in Genesis 19, Lot Though his family's in Sodom, Lot's wife benefits from Abraham's prayer. Do you remember what Abraham prayed? The Lord tells him what he's going to do with Sodom. And Abraham asks that question, Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And the Lord says, no, he won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he sends angels to rescue Lot and his family. So look at the privileges of this woman. They are privileges the rest of the world doesn't have. But while Lot's wife was around the things of God, watching the worship of God, receiving the very word of God, she did not embrace by faith the God who showed her these kindnesses. The kindnesses of the Lord did not lead her to repentance. And that is exactly the danger for these disciples right here. They are incredibly privileged to know the God man, Jesus Christ, right in their midst. They're hearing him preach. They're watching him heal. They're seeing demons cast away. They're seeing Jesus confound the religious leaders. But mere proximity 
to religious things will not put that religion in your heart. Seeing Christ's power and hearing his truth does not by itself change your heart of stone. You must repent. You must believe in him. You must see your need to cling to Christ, that he is life for you. And we know at least one man listening to Jesus right in this sermon doesn't believe. And that is Judas. All of his religious privileges are squandered. Well, brethren, we too this morning have many religious privileges. Some of you were born to godly parents and you have been taught the truths of the faith from childhood. Others of you, maybe you didn't have that as a kid, but you're blessed now to be in a church with many godly examples. You hear sound teaching, not moralisms, uh, not how to have a better kid by next week, though you might actually want to know if there's a way to do that. No. You're hearing truth from the Bible taught you week after week after week. You've got opportunities for Sunday school instruction, book studies, Bible studies, prayer meetings, groups that meet, small groups, prayer groups. You're getting constant reminders of the dangers of sin and the beauties of the gospel. You are getting to watch real prayers get answered. But you can enjoy the best teaching. You can see remarkable miracles and proof of a prayer hearing God and still have a heart that clings to the world and not Jesus Christ. Lot's wife showed that worldly entanglement was in her soul as she looked back. And you may think, well, Jesus is being really hard on Lot's wife. That was such a little thing. She just looked back. Well, brethren, you could say the same thing about Adam and Eve, couldn't you? Wasn't taking the, the fruit just a little thing? No, it was rebellion. It was a rejection of God, the goodness of God as he tells us the way to live, the wisdom of God as he directs our steps, the love of God as he would speak to sinners. This woman exalted herself. She valued what her eyes saw, her flesh, above what God said. It was unbelief. I will seek what satisfies me, my way, and I will not trust God to care for me. In fact, I think we could say it was idolatry. Because Lot's wife loved what God condemned rather than God himself. She faithlessly valued what God hated. And it was evidence that affection for the Lord was not in her heart. Her treasure was in an evil place. James rightly asks us a question in James 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred, we could say, against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Oh, what searchings of heart such truth ought to provoke in your conscience. When you hear of Watt's wife, when you recognize the reality of judgment in this world, And its ways can never please God. You have to ask yourself this morning, what is the state of my heart? Am I a professor of religion, but I haven't let go of the world? Am I conformed to the world's pattern rather than having my mind transformed by the renewing of it through the word of God? Am I in love with stuff here, whatever it may be, money, status, beauty, pleasure? Am I about a life of ease? 
Am I longing for a former life of sin as though that somehow satisfied me? Jesus is telling you, dear friends, the great day of his coming will expose half-hearted religion. The great day will reveal where your affections truly lie. The great day will show if you're looking back to the world or you're pressing toward the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus plainly says, verse 33, look at it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What defines your life? Is your life about preserving the best you can get here? Or is your life about self-denial, following Christ, even if that means the loss of your worldly reputation or the destruction of your earthly goods, or maybe even your own life. Most of us will probably remember that famous saying of Jim Elliott, the missionary to Ecuador, who was martyred in 1955. He's just paraphrasing Matthew Henry, but he famously said, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool. To give that which he cannot keep. To gain that which he cannot lose. If your chief concern is your own preservation. Gaining the best earthly standing you can get. Then you will lose your soul. But if you give yourself to Christ. And lose everything in your commitment to him. Maybe relationships because people hate you for the gospel. Maybe that you lose status in the world. Because you didn't chase money but you chase Christ, whatever the loss is, you will be preserved spiritually. You will gain unto eternity. And Jesus will keep his sheep. What is Christ saying to you? Oh, those who profess a love of Christ, hear my heart for you. Remember Lot's wife and don't lose yourself looking back to the world. Run to me. Love me. May that be true of us. And then secondly, see with me more briefly. Who will be left? Who will be left? In this last section on Jesus' teaching about coming judgment, he warns of an approaching situation. And again, he uses two illustrations. Look at verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. For those of you who are paying attention, you'll see there there's no verse 36 in your ESV Bible. Don't freak out about that. Um, you could find verse 36 in your footnote. Uh, it's, it's missing from all of the early manuscripts. It's clearly a connection to something Matthew said that was dragged by a scribe into Luke's gospel. It's not original. That's why it's not there. But we have two situations here where one is taken and one left. What, what does it all mean? Well, Jesus had already told his disciples back in Luke 12 that when he came to the earth, he didn't come bringing peace. He came bringing division. He came casting a fire, the refining work of the spirit. And there will be, Jesus said, in the same house, three against two and two against three. And these divisions will extend, he said, to father and son, son against father, to mother against daughter, daughter against mother. And of course, what Jesus meant was some in the house will have the refining work of the spirit changing them, others will meet the fire of God's judgment. 
Well, we have an echo of that saying here. Jesus first, he mentions two in the same bed where one is taken and the other left in verse 34. And masculine articles are used there. Since the second illustration is of women, it makes sense that the first is about two guys. Now, Jesus is simply describing the living situation of a father and son in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, families usually only had one bed for the whole family. Wouldn't that be fun? Can you imagine? Maybe if you just picture that for a moment, you'll remember that story about the the friend at midnight who comes knocking on the door to get something, and the guy says, basically, dude, buzz off. Can't you see I'm already in the bed? And crucial part, my children are with me in bed. Jesus is referring to that kind of situation. There's a close family connection, two in one bed. And he says on the night in which he's, he returns, these two will be forever separated. Now, I don't think by saying that night, Jesus is telling you, oh, Jesus is coming back at night. No, it serves the illustration. Jesus describes his coming as a thief in the night where the night of sin will be forever gone. And there's the new day of transformation. Don't get hung up on the timing. But then for a second, uh, second illustration for emphasis, Jesus mentions two women grinding. It's probable that this is one, this is, these two women are mother and daughter together. One is taken, the other left. Now, before I get to a larger point, uh, in, indulge me a second on the way Jesus is illustrating this. Because there's a pattern seen in Luke's gospel with how Jesus tells stories. And it's about the importance of women. I know I've made this point several times in the gospel of Luke, but it's a real emphasis in this gospel. Because Jesus tells two stories, one with men and one with women. In in Luke's gospel, this happens all the time. There's the story of the man with a lost sheep, followed by a woman who lost a coin, Luke 15. There's a story about the kingdom of God is like a man who planted seed and a woman who took a pinch of flour and worked it into dough. We have illustrations, Jesus uses, of the sign of Jonah. There will be people who condemn you at Judgment Day. The, the men of Nineveh, to whom Jonah preached, and the queen of the south, right, who came to visit Solomon. We get two healings on the Sabbath, a, a guy who had dropsy and a woman with a disabling spirit. On and on I could go. You're probably thinking, okay, that's nice, but what's the point? Well, this doubling of illustration, on the one hand, makes a matter emphatic. But on the other, by putting examples of men and women side by side, Jesus is stressing the importance of women. Brethren, this was totally unique in the ancient world. The rabbis never told a story about women, men and women in parallel. Never. It doesn't happen one time. Why is that? Because the rabbis ignored women. They didn't think they could be disciples. They didn't instruct them in the faith. But Jesus is making it plain that men and women are his disciples. Men and women are models of faith. And at the last day, here's the beautiful point, men and women will be personally brought to him because Jesus cares for the totality of his sheep. Do you see what Luke is saying? Every believer, no matter how insignificant in the world's eyes, no matter how low on the social scale, will be known and rescued by Jesus. And yet, as we look at what Jesus is saying overall, some are rescued and some are left. Now, 
I know there's a book, a whole series of books, with something like uh, Left Behind. Ever heard of it? I know that that maybe even came to your mind as we read this passage. Let me tell you, that book is full of all kinds of wrong-headed ideas. I already told you last week, there's no secret return of Jesus. People mysteriously taken away and their cars crash and their helicopters go down and their clothes are neatly piled up for everybody else to watch while everybody else is waiting on another return of Christ. That's false. Whatever this taking and leaving is, is happening simultaneously to the day of judgment, the very time when Christ's coming is obvious in the sky. Now, there's a bit of controversy here over this taking and leaving language. It's not immediately clear if being taken means taken away to judgment, and then the believers are the one who are left. 1 Thessalonians 4 might hint that it's that way. When Christ comes, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who remain, we who are left, will be caught up with them in the air. That's possible. Or it could be taken means taken for salvation, and left means you are exposed to judgment. Commentators are all over the place, so you just have to hear what I think. What do I think? I think taken is taken for rescue. And isn't that what happened in our context with Lot? He was taken by the hand and led out of the city. Noah, likewise, was taken. He builds the ark, yes, but who shuts the door? God does, and everyone else is left. Don't get bogged down on that. Either way you read it, the big idea is clear. There is a great day of separation coming when Jesus will divide the sheep and the goats, and the day will soon come when in the visible church we will no longer be a mixed group with the genuinely saved tangled up with religious pretenders who just love the world. No, they will be separated. And do you see that the illustration makes this really painful in one sense? There will be those who share the exact station of life from the same family, from the same house, who have the same privileges, and they end up on opposite sides of eternity. What is Jesus telling you? He's saying, if you trust me, if you cling to me, you have no need to fear that day. You will be safe in my presence. I will take you away for salvation. But if you don't cling to me, if you love the world, that day will be a disaster for you. Jesus is pressing urgency upon us. Be ready. Don't be an almost Christian like Lot's wife. Be one who is clinging closely to Christ. Don't try to ride the religious coattails of your parents, of your spouse, of some other member of the covenant community. If you don't know Christ, flee to him now. Hear his warning as a kindness to arrest your soul and run. Run to Jesus. After Jesus explains all this, the disciples ask a question and we'll close with this. They say, verse 37, we're Lord. Now, I think that they've learned the lesson that the Pharisees ask a dumb question. When, when will the kingdom come? Okay, we're not supposed to ask that question. Nobody asks when Jesus is coming back. That's a bad question. Where's it going to be? Like, if I could map it out, where's it going to happen? 
Well, again, this is a really confusing question in one sense, and Jesus' answer is even more confusing. Verse 37, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What in the world does that mean? There are more than half a dozen ideas, but I think really the simplest answer is best. The disciples ask, where will judgment occur? Jesus says, just like you won't miss my coming because it will be as lightning in the sky, you won't miss judgment because it will be as obvious as vultures gathering to scavenge a corpse. You might think that's a really disgusting image. And I agree with you, it is. But Jesus is making quite a striking point. If you don't have the safety of being in Christ on the day of judgment, if you don't have a love for Christ above all else, you will be the corpse. You will be the corpse. Do you remember Revelation 19? There are two suppers described. Many of you will immediately remember the first. It's the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, we long for the day when we will sit down with Jesus, look at him face to face, and enjoy his blessed presence. We will shout hallelujah and sing his praise. But then later in the chapter, there's another supper. It's called the Great Supper of God, where the carrion birds are called to gather that they might feed upon the flesh of all those who have rebelled against Christ and fallen in judgment. If you resist King Jesus, he's saying, you will be destroyed. You will meet a curse. And you know what a curse is in the Old Testament? It's having your body left unburied and having the animals pick you to pieces. You will be cursed. Brother, what is the message that Jesus is painting before us? He's telling you, he's pleading with you. Be ready for me to return. Focus on me. Look to the day of glory or that day will be one of gore as you face eternal destruction with King Jesus himself striking you down. Well, don't let the return of Christ be a grim affair for your soul. Don't drift away from Christ. Don't grow cold in your affection for Jesus. Look to him who alone can hide all your transgressions from view. Plead with him to be merciful to you that you would press on to the end. And some of you, as you think about it, you know people who have drifted away. You know people who have fallen. You know people who had an incredible profession of faith and then they walked out on God. Don't let that be you. Remember Lot's wife. May we all take heed to ourselves and make sure Sodom isn't in our heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are so kind to warn us. And we confess, even in the warning, we often don't like it because it's a hard word. But Lord, we pray that we would see your affection that drives this hard word to warn us against destruction. Lord, may we find you to be our ark of safety. May we hide ourselves in you as the rock of ages. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us. We pray for ourselves that we would not drift away, but that we would have a flaming heart for Christ and go on seeking to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I plead for you, for those among us who perhaps are 
drifting and who are pulled by the world. Lord, would you arrest them in their steps? Would you grant them repentance? May none who are among us be those who find the day a day of destruction for their soul. And I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.